The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. All right, I have three uh, sections, which we may not get completely through. Uh, I, I hope there'll be some time for questions uh, before the end of the hour. But Roman numeral one is on the work of the Holy Spirit in Acts. And in a sense, I'm, I'm going to take a fairly broad view of Acts at that point. In Roman numeral two, then, we will look particularly at the language related to the baptism and outpouring of the Holy Spirit and what that signifies for us. All right, in Roman numeral three, actually, I'll, I'll uh, draw out or ask, raise some questions. I have some statements, but also some questions about implications. Uh, for us. So Roman numeral one, then, is the work of the Holy Spirit in Acts. And I want to uh, say a few brief things, first of all, on how we should read the book of Acts, how we should read it. Uh, and I'm going to offer these things because I think sometimes uh, uh, when there's an unreflective reading of Acts, uh, that conclusions are drawn which were not really in the purpose of, of Luke, the author, the human author, or the purpose of God. So uh, there are three suggestions under uh, this how to read uh, Acts. Uh, First of all, that uh, especially when we're looking at what Acts says about the Holy Spirit, I think there's a temptation to read Acts a little bit too much in the light of what Paul has to say, because the Apostle Paul has a lot to say about the Holy Spirit too. Now, if we believe that both Acts and the epistles of Paul have the same divine author, that they're both the word of God, then we expect that they will be saying things that uh, agree with one another, that harmonize, all right? On the other hand, I do believe that in the providence of God and in God's own wisdom, in using the human authors, Luke on the one hand and Paul on the other, God himself designed that there should be a slightly different perspective on what the Holy Spirit accomplishes so that there is a distinct way of learning about what uh, how God is presenting the matter if you will in the book of Acts and the emphases are not always the same in every respect as they are in Paul's letters so that's number one Uh, read it read it uh, as a uh, a continuous book that forms a whole in itself number two is to read the book the gospel of Luke that is together with the book of Acts. They're both by the same author, and actually, if you look at the uh, first few lines of Luke and Acts, you will realize that they were really intended to be part of a single work. And in that respect, it's a little unfortunate that in our Bibles, we have them separated by the book of John, because uh, when Luke originally wrote them, he conceived of them as one work. So in a sense, they ought to be read as as a continuous story. Uh, third suggestion is that Luke has what I would call theological interests. He's not just writing to entertain you. <laughs> uh, he's, 
he's expressing some deep truths about the Christian faith. But he expresses them in a narrative form. That is, he expresses those interests in the truths of Christ and of the Christian faith by telling you a history of what happened only once. Now, that is uh, a contrasted, say, with Paul, who's not, tell, uh, not writing narrative, all right? He's just writing theology. And I think we, uh, at least some of us, uh, need to accustom ourselves, maybe some of us are already accustomed to it, but some of us need to accustom ourselves to the, uh, this combination of theology and history as a natural one. Uh, and if you've uh, had any acquaintance with uh, academic uh, studies in New Testament, you'll find there are people who claim that something could be only theology or only history, but the combination is not natural. Well, in fact, I believe it is natural in Acts. But uh, it's possible then to, to make a mistake, I think, in reading Acts. On the one hand, to use it simply as examples that we ought to imitate. Now, I think that, that's just using it, um, you might say, purely as doctrinal, all right? Here's what they did, you ought to do the same thing. Well, I'd say not in every case, because these things happened only once. So there, it, there would be a mistake, we would make a mistake if we, would, were, we were to say uh, everything written in the book of Acts is just to be slavishly imitated. All right, that would be the one mistake. And the other mistake would be the sort of opposite extreme, to say, well, because this is history, because it happened only once, it really doesn't have anything to do with us. All right? So uh, there, there is a sort of balance between those two, which I'll try to formulate a, a little bit uh, later. So don't force passages into either an exemplary mold that is, where they are just examples which ought to be imitated point by point, or into a mode of, what shall I say, irrelevance. It happened once in the past and then doesn't speak to us. Second, I want to say something about what I think are some of the chief theological interests in uh, Luke and Acts together. The first interest, as I see it, is uh, in Jesus Christ. Uh, it's so obvious, maybe it doesn't need to be mentioned, yet I think we grow so familiar that maybe we need to be reminded of that. That the Gospel of Luke is not some arbitrary selection of things that happened somewhere in about 30 AD, but it's focused on the person of Christ and his public ministry. That's Luke. Well, what about Acts then? Because Jesus doesn't appear uh, directly uh, in most of the narrative of Acts, he does appear at the beginning. Well, the book of Acts has an interest, I believe, in the spread of the word of the gospel, the spread of the word accomplishing growth in the church. And you actually, there are some summary statements scattered through Acts. Acts 1.8, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. And actually, that indicates that still in the background, there is a focus on Christ. It's a, the word is the word about Christ, all right? This word that causes the spread and the growth in the church. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria to the end of the earth. Now, that's the program which is progressively fulfilled then in the course of the book of Acts. All right, and then you find periodically through Acts little summary statements, Acts 6, 7, for instance, that the word of God increased and the number of the disciples multiplied. 
And that kind of summary statement then indicates a major interest in Acts. The second way of summarizing those theological interests might be this way. Jesus is the final prophet. That is, he is the proclaimer of God's word to which all the Old Testament prophets were leading up. He's the final prophet, and as the final prophet, he proclaims, he utters the word of God, he proclaims and accomplishes the jubilee fulfillment. He's not only a proclaimer then, but he accomplishes a jubilee fulfillment. Now, what do I mean by that? (laughs) Well, the jubilee was one of the great Old Testament uh, symbols of release from captivity because uh, at the end of 49 years, the slaves would be released. They would uh, get their land that had, had been sold. They would get it back. They would be released from bondage. And this was kind of a little picture of the great release that the people of Israel had experienced from Egypt and the bondage in Egypt. But you see, all that is going to be climaxed with the release from sin that Christ accomplishes in his death and his resurrection. All right, so he is, he is a prophet who is announcing this release during his earthly life, and actually through the lips of the apostles then he announces the release in Acts. But also he accomplishes the release, all right? He accomplishes it climactically in his death and resurrection, but of course then that release from sin is then applied all the way through Acts, and you see these progressively larger circles of people being touched by the gospel and responding and coming to faith and being transformed by that. So let me give you a little picture then of the book of Acts. Well, Luke and Acts. I think Luke and Acts have a kind of double climax, if you will, or at least this is an effective way of thinking of it, that in the gospel of Luke you find these various incidents and predictions and things that are pointing forward to the crucifixion and the resurrection, scattered through it, key, key points in the gospel. Jesus says the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles and be killed and be crucified and on the third day rise. He predicts that. It's embodied in his parables. Various things, all right, are all pointing forward to that and saying this is really the climactic event. All right? And then after the crucifixion and the resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples and in Luke 24, a couple of spots, he interprets the meaning of what happened, especially at that point. And he says in Luke 24, 26, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and enter into his glory. Sorry, I'm confusing a few uh, passages there, but uh, there's more than one passage where Jesus makes the, the point that the Old Testament predicted his suffering and subsequent glory. All right? So after his resurrection, he interprets this great climactic event as an event of fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And then you might say that all the resurrection then is the visible side or the visible thing that accompanies his ascension and is sitting down at the right hand of the Father. We don't see that directly accounted in the book of Luke or of Acts, but as a result of his sitting down at the right hand of the Father, he pours out the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.33 
Being, therefore, exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you see and hear. In other words, Pentecost, I've got the little dove there to represent Pentecost, is an offspring, if you will, of the ascension. Having received from the Father, having sat down at the right hand of the Father, he has poured out the Holy Spirit. Pentecost, all right? So Pentecost is the other great climax along with the resurrection, both of which, and in between them, you might say, the ascension. Pentecost is the other great climax. And then after that, the book of Acts is a kind of, um, it's like a, 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 the kind of thing with a stone that you throw into a pond, you know, and you get progressively larger circles of waves going out. Well, Pentecost is the stone thrown into the pond, and then you get the progressively wider expansion of the effects and the application of Pentecost to the, uh, uh, well, larger circles of peoples, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth is Jesus' program in Acts 1.8. So Acts 1.8 actually is another key interpretive passage. But uh, Luke 24 sums it all up. Uh, so that one, you might say, if you want one passage that, that points both backwards to the cross and forwards to Pentecost, it's in Luke 24, verse 46. Well, verse 45 uh, and 44 are also relevant. Let's start there. Then he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you. Now, you see, this is already, it's a summary of everything Jesus had been saying during his earthly life. While I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. All right, there's that note of fulfillment, of a bringing to a climax all the history in the Old Testament, and then saying, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Now that is at this point, it's pointing backwards to what had already happened. But that isn't the end, what comes afterwards. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be preached in his name to all nations. All right, there are the larger circles in this uh, the waves going out on the pond, beginning from Jerusalem, that's the center point from which the waves will go out. You are witnesses of these things. So the uh, apostles in particular, who have been witnesses in Jesus' earthly life, are to have a central role in the expansion in Acts. All right? So that, I think it does capture very well both the backward-looking and forward-looking aspects of these climactic events uh, in the... Uh, the history, well, not only of Jesus' earthly life, but uh, of the whole of the history of the world. Now, what I want to say then is that more specifically with respect to Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit, that this is a watershed event. It is a watershed event. It is like the water going over the falls. <laughs> Uh, or in a sense there are three stages to the falls, all right, uh, the resurrection, the ascension, and Pentecost. But uh, there, are, there are rapids, if you will, below the falls that are where Pentecost and its effects reach out to progressively larger groups. And there's three events in particular in the, in the book of Acts 
which are, um, well, I'm going to alter my metaphor a little bit. And uh, so imagine you throw the th stone into the pond, but uh, you use a flat stone and you try to make it skim over the surface, all right? So it hits the pond at one point and then it hits again and again, about three times, all right? Well, there are these further than uh, expansions outward. One of them in Acts 8, where the gospel comes to the Samaritans who were the sort of heretics uh, of the first century from the Jewish point of view, that is. Uh, but uh, they also are then touched and transformed by the gospel. Secondly, the gospel comes to the Gentiles for the first time, Cornelius in Acts 10. And thirdly, it comes to a sort of... Um, uh, anomalous in-between group, disciples of John the Baptist, who had sort of gotten part way into the New Age, but uh, had not heard about the giving of the Spirit through Jesus. They just heard a proclamation from John about a coming one. That's Acts 19. So three s separate events then where, where the uh, uh, Pentecost, if you will, is, uh, has effects on these rapids further down the stream. Now, from there, I want to go on to mention a few things about number two, Roman numeral two, namely aspects of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I hope you've been able to capture a little bit of the glimpse of the tremendous plan of God here working out for the sake of the whole of the redemption of the world, working out in these unique events, which are unrepeatable, all right? That's the one aspect. But now, exactly what, what is significant about the giving of the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? And I'm going to try to look at that. Paul has a lot of things to say about it, but I'm going to try to look at it from the standpoint of Luke and Acts together, all right, but primarily Acts. So I, I have a summary statement first, and then I'll look at various perspectives on the outpouring of the Spirit, and then we'll talk about baptism uh, with the Spirit. So the summary statement is this that when Christ is raised and when he ascends to the right hand of God, he is accomplishing a climactic fulfillment of the last days. Uh, that's, there's a lot of big words in there. But what I mean to say is that though, particularly the resurrection and the ascension of Christ are a climax that has been looks forward to by prophecy in the Old Testament. Prophecy talked about the, in the last days, such and such will happen, all right? Now, this is then being fulfilled in Christ's resurrection. But now, when Christ is raised, he is not raised simply for his own sake. He's raised for the sake of people who are in bondage to sin, you and me, we're in bondage to sin and we need to be released. And so the Spirit is poured out to unite us to Christ and to bring that release. And I'll put it this way, that the power uh, and the fellowship of his resurrection are poured out on the nations. And I say that specifically the power and fellowship of his resurrection are poured out on the nations. Well, I say on the nations because, remember, we're getting this idea of universality from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, all nations then. The power and fellowship of his resurrection is poured out on the nations, releasing them from the bondage of sin. All right, so there's that 
element of release. It fulfills the predictions that have been made in the Old Testament about release from sin. And that's my, that's my summary statement, all right, about what, what is significant about the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is poured out, then he is releasing us from the bondage of sin uh, by bringing us into relationship to the power of Christ's own resurrection. But, in particular, now I'll look at several aspects. Uh, so, um, well, I'm going to try to uh, use quite a few different perspectives, actually. And uh, one, one of the three, uh, there are several sequences of three things I want you to look at. But the first sequence of three is concerns the fact when the Spirit comes, there's an exercise of divine power, the power on one hand, there is a sign or proclamation element in the coming of the Spirit, and there is fellowship with God. So there's power, there is proclamation, and there's fellowship with God. Now, before I illustrate those in Acts, I want to illustrate those three in connection with Jesus' earthly ministry, because, again, Luke and Acts belong together. I think it's important to see that what the Spirit is accomplishing in Acts is not something that's sort of independent, but is rooted in Jesus' own ministry and in Jesus' own person. So, in Jesus' earthly ministry, there is an exercise of divine power. That comes to focus in the miracles. There is also a prophetic gospel proclamation, all right? His parables, his teaching. His proclamation... And there is also fellowship with God. That is, Jesus welcomes sinners. All right? And in welcoming sinners to himself, he, is, he, as God in the flesh, is establishing fellowship with God. Very significant thing, which I think sometimes we overlook. But a tremendous proclamation, nonverbal proclamation, if you will, of the grace of God that he eats and drinks with sinners. He gathers to himself disciples who are not... Uh, anything special in the world's eyes. Now, I want to say that those three things, both the power and the proclamation and the fellowship, are all three brought to a climax in Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Now, the crucifixion is a kind of power displayed in weakness. Uh, God accomplishes uh, the forgiveness of sins precisely in a moment of apparent weakness. But the resurrection, you see the power in, in its positive way, all right? So that's the power aspect. What about proclamation? Well, it's a kind of indirect thing because Jesus doesn't do a lot of proclamation himself, but there is proclamation in a kind of perverse way by those round about him who say, you claim to be the king of the Jews, and the title over the cross reads, the king of the Jews. Well, to a Christian... <laughs> He can read that back into a right context. The people who did it were mocking him, but underneath there is a deeper motif of God using even the wrath of men to praise him and saying the, what these people uttered without knowing what they were saying is nevertheless in a deeper sense true. So there is a proclamation of Jesus' kingship there. And there is fellowship with God. Obviously, uh, the crucifixion in Christ's death for sins eliminates the guilt and the bondage to sin, and by that means establishes our fellowship with God, all right? So those three things are manifest there. But now look at the Holy Spirit in Acts, and you will see that the same three things are operative in Acts. 
so you have miraculous works that the apostles are accomplishing. You have the uh, boldness in preaching. Both of those things are relate to this aspect of divine power at work. And then there is a proclamation, explicit proclamation of the gospel by the uh, apostles. And then there is fellowship. All right, the church is marked by the fellowship of believers one with another and their fellowship with God. Ananias and Sapphira, of course, they, they die because they did not recognize the Holy Spirit being in the midst of them. Peter said, you not lie to men, only to these people with you in the church, which would be bad enough. You've lied to God because God himself was in the midst of the church. <laughs> All right, now, so there is the Holy Spirit's coming then means the exercise of divine power it means the proclamation, open proclamation now, not no longer in shadowy form like the parables, but open proclamation of J Jesus' work and its significance and the call to repentance and also fellowship with God. All right, you can look at it in another way, though. You can look at it, the coming of the Spirit, as resulting in the operation, the work of divine words and deeds and suffering. All right, so uh, I'm not going to spend very long on this, but I, I want you to think about how the fact these three fit together. They fit together in Jesus' earthly life, all right? He was ministering by his words, he was ministering by his deeds, and by his suffering. Similarly, in the book of Acts, there is a verbal proclamation, there is the exercise of deeds, both miracles and the sharing uh, of, of goods that took place in the early church and various other things that were ministry of kindness. And there is suffering, all right? The church does suffer. And uh, still another uh, thing that I want to say is that, uh, particularly in the matter of fellowship, all right, uh, that there is fellowship between God and man established by forgiveness of sins. And there's also fellowship between man and man. Within the church, you, can, you hear that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, all right? That was one with another. So there is reconciliation. The release from sin means reconciliation, both God to man and man to man. Now, uh, what I want you to be seeing is that when the Spirit comes, there is really a tremendous uh, process and a tremendous dynamic that's set in motion where there's a, of course, there's a lot of extraordinary things going on, but they fit into a pattern that, that is, in a sense, a continuation of Jesus' earthly life. Now, I want to say very definitely, of course, that Jesus' earthly life is a once-and-for-all thing. What he accomplished once uh, remains significant for all time. It doesn't need to be repeated. But the, the, uh, the um, Holy Spirit establishes a communion with Christ in which there, there is a recognizable similarity between what is going on in the church and what went on in Jesus' earthly life. What I want to say is that we think of the Holy Spirit's coming certainly as a coming in power, a coming that gives boldness in proclamation of the gospel, that establishes fellowship, but that all those things are rooted in this ascension of Christ, that they all are manifesting a presence of Christ himself in the congregation. Now, I think that the Gospel of Luke plus Acts does not 
because it's writing history, it tends not to say that in so many words. But if you read Luke and Acts through together, you will pick up the picture because of the way in which Jesus' earthly life is related to what is going on in Acts. Now, my third part under this aspects of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the significance of the word baptism. Several times the coming of the Spirit and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the community is called baptism. Now, why should it be called that? Uh, maybe it's one of those things, you know, that you get used to and never think about. Uh, what, what does the word baptism do? Well, I have about four things here. First of all, that uh, I think uh, baptism, well, the word baptism does associate the coming of the Spirit with the picture, with the symbol of water baptism, all right? But then that just pushes it back, uh, and you say, well, what's significant about water baptism? What does it say? So the first point um, is that it is an inaugural or initiatory sign for the community, an inaugural, inaugural or initiatory sign. Now, I think that needs to be thought about because uh, there is no doubt, in my mind at least, that the apostles and some of the other disciples beyond the circle of the Twelve, that there was some sense in which they had a, a, a faith and a commitment to Christ even for his resurrection. Now, it was a wavering, it was a weak faith, but it was there. And certainly after then, his resurrection, even before Pentecost. And so there's a tendency to say, well, they were Christians before, all right? But there's another sense in which Pentecost is the birthday of the church. And it, because it's, it represents this transition in the whole history of God's dealings with men, a once and for all transition, it represents the birthday of the church. It is then an initiatory sign. It inaugurates a whole new age of this spread of the gospel to all nations through the power of the Spirit. All right, so it is initiatory. And baptism is something that properly comes at the beginning of the Christian life, you see. Uh, you start out by being cleansed from sins, and that's symbolized by the water aspect. All right? Similarly, you start out by being brought into this community of the power of the Holy Spirit, and that is then we talk about baptism with the Holy Spirit, an initiatory sign. Secondly, it signifies both cleansing and fellowship. Cleansing, you see that with the water sign, all right? And there's a power exercised, actually, in the overcoming of sin, in cleansing. And fellowship, that is, you're baptized into the name of Christ, all right? So that establishes fellowship with Christ. <coughs> cleansing and fellowship. And I would say, then, it's both with God and with the community. Baptism, even as the, the sign with water, of course, has a reference to God in the name of Christ, all right, and it's something that God commands, and it has a reference to the community. The community is told this person is to be treated now as a fellow brother with you, all right? But similarly, if you think of the, the, uh, what baptism with water signifies, namely baptism with the Holy Spirit, then that also is a Godward direction because the Holy Spirit is himself God, and a community direction because you then share in the gifts of the Holy Spirit with other believers. 
But now, uh, the, not point four, in a sense this is what the whole is warming up to, that baptism with the Holy Spirit should not be simply and purely equated with regeneration. Regeneration, by that I mean when a person, by the work of the Spirit, is first brought to know God and repent of his sins and uh, to be a true servant of God, all right? He has changed, his heart has changed. That's what I mean by regeneration. But baptism of the Holy Spirit is not simply to be equated with that because it is an initiatory sign into this new age, all right? People were generated in the sense that they were made true servants of God even in the Old Testament. But this initiatory sign is something that is characteristic of this context of Acts. And that means that I do want to emphasize, and I think it's proper to emphasize, that it is an initiatory sign and not the, quote, second blessing, unquote. I'm going to have some other things to say about second blessings. I hope we'll be able to say some things positively. But I believe that terminology of baptism is focused on this initiation and so it ought not to be confused with a situation where a person may be coming into the body of Christ initiate initially all right then later on may come into a fuller appreciation a fuller working of the spirit in his life all right now that's fine that does happen but it isn't the initial uh, uh, thing that brings him in to the community of the Spirit, and, and therefore I'd rather not call it baptism. I think, I think that's the, w- the way the language in the New Testament is itself moving. Now let me say uh, a, a word or two about the Apostle Paul, because the Apostle Paul uses the phrase baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, I think it means basically the same thing in Paul as it does in Acts, but the perspective is a little bit different. I've already been trying to to uh, get you a little bit sensitive to that because Paul is oriented mainly to the theology and not to this historical development that Luke is focusing on. But for Paul, baptism with the Holy Spirit means baptism into Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is the one key text. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm reading the Revised Standard Version here, but I'm going to have to uh, change it here. The King James, I think, has something similar. But the word by is a little unfortunate because uh, the Greek, the corresponding word in Greek is a little word in, which can be translated either in or with. shouldn't be translated by, however. I would prefer then in the Holy Spirit, that is, that's the element in which you were put in baptism, or with the Holy Spirit, probably the best way of translating it. With the Holy Spirit, we were baptized into one body. So the Holy Spirit then becomes the instrument used by God in bringing us into the body of Christ, in other words, into union with Christ. All right, so that's why I say baptism with the Spirit is basically baptism into Christ and you get the language of being baptized into Christ in Galatians 3:27 Galatians 3:27 says for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ now that brings still another metaphor it's the metaphor of putting on clothing all right but all th- these various expressions are ways of expressing the intensity of the fellowship with Christ and of transformation into the image of Christ that is brought about when 
the Holy Spirit comes to you and you are made new. All right? That is not a process which is, you, can, you ought to think of as isolated from the presence of Christ himself. When the Spirit comes, Christ comes. And in that coming then, you are transformed to be a new person. A new man is the language that Paul uses there. A new person after the image of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that you are perfect, all right? There is also a growth. It's as if you have a new birth, but then the baby has to grow to be an adult, all right? But the new birth is still a radical process. Now, I'm I'm slipping back into the language of new birth. I don't want you to confuse that with regeneration again, because I think this fellowship that the, the Apostle Paul is describing is something that's possible only after the resurrection. Now, Christ did fellowship with the disciples before the resurrection, all right? But then he says, it's better that I go away. How could it be better that he go away? Well, because when the Spirit came, there was essentially an inward and more intense fellowship than the disciples ever had during their earthly life because that resulted in an inner understanding and an inner presence of Christ that was, in the end, greater than the simple fact of his uh, outward presence bodily. So I want to say the kind of fellowship that's established with Christ is a deeper and more intensive than was ever so before Pentecost. So once again, baptism with, Christ, uh, with the Spirit, then, is baptism into Christ or putting on Christ and becoming a new person. Roman numeral three, then, I'm going to have to hurry. I want some time for questions. Concerns, implications for us. Well, I hope you've been diligently drawing a few implications already. But uh, here I have, in a sense, uh, uh, quite a few miscellaneous uh, comments because I think this is the kind of thing where you never stop drawing implications, all right? Uh, the, the implications are just very rich. So, first of all, I want to say something which is, you might say, a little more on the negative side, and that, that is with regard to the fact that, that the book of Acts is a once-for-all, uh, it describes once-and-for-all events. Particularly, the day of Pentecost and the coming of Spirit there is a once-and-for-all event in the history of, of God's dealings with the world to redeem people. All right, it's, it's like the resurrection of Christ. It happens only once, and it need only happen once. It, it, its significance is, is a lot like the resurrection. It applies the resurrection to us. All right, that's the way you can say it. I also think that it's helpful to distinguish between the gift of the Spirit, singular, the Spirit being given to the church as he was at Pentecost, and the gifts of the Spirit, plural. That is, there is a diversity of gifts. There is prophecy in tongues that takes place on the day of Pentecost. Paul lists a whole lot of different things that the Spirit furnishes. The gift of the Spirit is a fundamental reality that unites us with Christ. The gifts, not everyone has them all, all right? And many of them are destined then to disappear uh, when Christ returns. You know, Paul mentions 1 Corinthians 13, that uh, our knowledge now is partial and partial vanishes when wholeness comes. Also, you find in Acts, because of this uniqueness of the events, that there is really, there is no fixed order 
or pattern in which things happen. For instance, which comes first, water baptism or spirit baptism? Well, it happens both ways. Acts 8, the water comes first. Acts 19, the water comes first. Acts 2, it's not clear. Although Acts 2.38, uh, the, the, uh, uh, they are uh, to be baptized and then receive the Spirit. Acts, Acts 10, the Spirit comes first and then they are baptized with water. Uh, does the giving of the Spirit take place with or without the laying on of hands? Well, sometimes one, sometimes without. Or uh, is it, does the, this pouring out of the Spirit come at the same time as the initial faith in Christ? Well, sometimes not, and sometimes so. All right, so uh, I think we make a mistake if we try to read out some pattern which would then uniformly apply now and say every Christian ought to go through exactly this set of experiences. Now, that's more the negative side, all right, and I think that's the kind of thing I was aiming at a little bit in saying that we, we ought to appreciate Luke is presenting theological interests, but by he's doing it by history, history which is not repeatable. Second, then, or this is really B, concerns, and this is more the positive side, the fact that not in spite of the uniqueness of Pentecost or in spite of the events of Acts, but in a sense precisely because of the uniqueness these events become a sort of pattern or model for us individually and corporately for the whole history of the church. Now, let me illustrate that. Christ died, he was crucified once and for all. all right? He never is to die again. And that dying and his bearing the sins of the world, that also is unique, all right? The sin bearing. On the other hand, precisely in that uniqueness, he becomes the pattern for our dying. Romans 6.3 Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? All right, so Paul is going to argue, and actually the thing goes on in Romans 6, if you are united to Christ, you've been baptized into Christ, and there's that language which is closely related to being baptized with the Spirit, incidentally. You are united to Christ, then you died. There's no other conclusion. You died to sin. All right, you died to the power of sin. The power of sin is broken in your life if you've been baptized into Christ. That's true. You ought to... You ought to sort of let that soak in, but it's true even before you let it soak in. <laughs> now, what is that saying? It's saying that Christ's death is the pattern for understanding the fact and, well, actually the accomplishment of the fact that you died too, all right? So, precisely in that once and for all event, you are sort of caught up and it affects you. It's, it's the example, it's the picture by which you look and understand your own life. If you were in Christ, all right, that is definitive. The picture of Christ's death is definitive for understanding your own position, that you have died to sin. And similarly, it's not only you died once, 
Paul says you died in baptism, all right. Baptism signifying a once and for all break with the power of sin. When you become a Christian, you say, I'm writing off sin. <laughs> all right, but not in my own power, but because Christ wrote it off. All right. That's once and for all for in your life, all right? When you first became a Christian, that happened. But now there is also a progressive working of it out in your life, all right? And Paul says, I die every day. 1 Corinthians 15, he says that. 2 Corinthians 4, 10, he says it too. Now, what have we got then? We have got three, three pieces, all right? We've got a, a once... A once and for all death of Christ on the cross, we have got once in each one of you at the beginning of your Christian life, and then you've got progressive, all right? And in fact, we could say you've got a, a sort of final death to sin uh, when Christ returns, or when you die, then sin completely eliminated. But I will, won't bring that in. Now let's look at that same pattern with respect not to the death of Christ on the cross, but with respect to Pentecost. Pentecost, first of all, is a once and for all event that happened only once in history. It was the birthday of the church, all right? Never to be repeated. It did have these little, there were these little rapids farther down the stream in Acts 8 and 10 and 19, which were related to that once and for all event. But now, you see, that is not the end. And, and uh, I want to say this, uh, I want to bring this in uh, because I think that sometimes uh, those of us who are conscious of the uniqueness of Pentecost and say, no, we don't have to repeat Pentecost, we don't have to tarry for the Spirit for 50 days as they did, and so on. And I believe that that's correct, all right, but I think that sometimes if we say that, then we use that without recognizing that there are implications of Pentecost, all right? So I want to say, once in each one of you, if you belong to Christ, when in being united with Christ, you received the gift of the Spirit. And that Spirit was a gift of divine power and of fellowship with God and a spirit of witness, all right? That's very prominent in the book of Acts, a spirit of witness, you have been transformed. The Spirit dwells in you, and in dwelling in you, it's God himself, the, the one who created the whole universe, who dwells in you in power, all right? That happened, all right, once, but now what about the progressive? <laughs> uh, if I may name names here... Uh, we're, some of you have already been thinking about the charismatic movement and the Pentecostals. And uh, I think that we all should call ourselves and call one another to face the challenge there that many of these people, they are brothers and sisters in Christ, who, though they may disagree with what I have said at certain points, they are, here and there, imperfectly, as are us all, they are demonstrating some of this progressing out, progressive working out and demonstration of the power of the Spirit and the fellowship with God and with man that is created by the Holy Spirit and so on. 
And uh, so I think there is a reason why uh, brothers and sisters in the charismatic movement will identify their own experience with Acts. And they will say, I recognize myself in the events of Pentecost and in the events of Cornelius' house. I recognize myself because I have experienced that power of the Spirit coming to transform me. Now, you see, I want to say there's a legitimacy in that without, without saying, well, everyone has to go through some sort of set uh, one, two, three steps of experience, all right? That's not even so in the book of Acts. There's a great diversity of experience. But I want to challenge myself and you all that we do, uh, we do ask that the Holy Spirit would come upon us both individually and as communities in a more and more progressively powerful way and in establishing fellowship with God and in this area of witness. Um, and I suppose, uh, well, we can take a, um, a moment or two uh, in a few minutes to pray just about that. Let me look at my notes and see if I've got uh, anything I've left out here that I should have mentioned. Well, let me put it another way. I, I want to I ask the question whether we as members of the church have not settled down now, there's a, there's a sense in which the church does settle down in being established, and Paul in the pastoral epistles is, is uh, making sure that the order of the church is well established by the appointment of elders and giving instructions to Timothy because Paul himself will be passing off the scene. He warns of certain persecutions, and uh, he warns the elders in particular to guard the church. So there is a, a certain settling of... Uh, church order as the apostles pass off on the other uh, pass off the scene on the other hand i wonder whether many times we don't settle down in a bad sense and we just are sort of status quo christians uh, we just uh, things uh, uh, things continue the same way they've always been as the machinery uh, keeps uh, running and uh, the church uh, keeps ticking along, then that's fine. Don't upset uh, the apple cart. Don't uh, disturb uh, the saints who are sleeping in Zion. <laughs> well, um, take a look at this dynamic in the book of Acts. Uh, I think we need to be uh, encouraged by Acts, granted its uniqueness, to say, here is a challenge to believe in the greatness of the power of the Spirit who has been given to us. And that we as a church would expect uh, the witness of Christ's word to go abroad and to, and to see that bringing men to Christ. And to see the Spirit at work sometimes in an extraordinary way as well as an ordinary way. To be, to, not that we sort of blow the extraordinary out of proportion because uh, I think in some ways the main point is to, to realize the Spirit is among us in quite ordinary things like saying Abba, Father, calling God Father. That's something that the Spirit does. But uh, that also we realize God is in control of the church and not us. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I struggle, and I hope you can sense a little bit uh, today, I struggle with how to say this because... Uh, uh, I, I, I do uh, realize we're sort of uh, the, uh, the 
material in the Bible is, is of a complex and rich nature and that it's easy to oversimplify in one direction or another and it's easy to have false hopes for the church to want everything to be uh, beds of roses, to want to have a really uh, spectacular revival when God's purpose uh, for this time may be something that's much quieter and slower but in the end accomplishes his purposes just as effectively, all right? But uh, I also want to insert that element of challenge because I really think uh, we, we need to uh, come to grips with what God is saying in the book of Acts and to ask ourselves, uh, you know, have I fully realized the depth of what it means that God himself has come to dwell, the power of the resurrection of Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, he says, says that uh, he prays that the Spirit may be given to the Ephesians. And, and he would, if he were here now, he would pray that the Spirit would be given to us so that we would know what is the greatness of, of the, uh, the uh, power which is at work among us, the same power which raised Christ from the dead. And uh, all that we would be transformed to, um, to know <laughs> through the ministry of the Spirit to realize Christ is there, ascended at the right hand of God, that very power which raised him from the dead and enthroned him has subdued all things under his feet. And it's with that kind of confidence that, that uh, we fellowship with one another and identify the fact that the Spirit has come and Christ is at work in transforming our brothers and sisters and also that we realize there is a message uh, that has power to transform the world and to release it from the bondage to sin. Let's have a word of prayer. <clears throat> oh Lord, we, we know that there are difficult things in making judgments uh, about the church and of what we are to expect. And yet, Lord, we would not minimize the greatness of the power of the resurrection of Christ. And Lord, we would pray that... Uh, you would transform us in, in our understanding and in our lives. Lord, we ask your forgiveness for uh, just sometimes floating along and imagining uh, being kind of status quo Christians that just want everything to uh, be uh, quiet and at rest without realizing that there is a great power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. And Lord, we we would uh, recognize also that there are problems in our own lives and there are problems in the church and many of those things are themselves a means for your building us up as we struggle, as we suffer, as we uh, weep and uh, uh, with those who are weeping and that we uh, feel the hurt when another member of the body suffers. But Lord, we would ask that in all that the, your own presence in the Holy Spirit would be among us in all power and grace to establish your church and to establish each one of us uh, blameless in, when Christ comes. In his name we pray. Amen.